What is it that causes our fascination with horrific crimes and where they happened? Is it the crime itself? Is it a belief that murder victims haunt their murder scene forever? Or is it our fear of the unknown? When someone is found guilty, but there are still so many questions left, do we just fill in the blanks with ghosts and demons? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained. I'm your host, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who spends more and more time delving into the details of horrific crimes and less time where I need it, which is in therapy. This week, it's totally normal to run into a packed bar to announce that your family's been killed, right? Like, that's a logical choice? The DeFeo family murders of 1974 and their lasting effects. The only way you haven't heard of the Amityville Horror is if you've been living off the grid for the past 35 years. And if that's the case, A, how are you listening to this podcast? And B, do you have a living off the grid starter kit I can borrow? Before the movie, The Amityville Horror and its 5,000 spinoffs, there was the book. But before the book, there was the IRL Amityville Horror, which started with the brutal familicide of the DeFeo family in Amityville, New York in 1974. So remember about 15 seconds ago when I mocked people who hadn't heard of The Amityville Horror? Here's where I turn the mockery back on myself and tell you I had never heard of the DeFeo murders before my producer, Patrick Hines, was like, obviously you have to do the DeFeo murders. And I was like, obviously. And then did some frantic Googling. And then I regretted saying yes. And here we are. Next time, I'll delve into the Amityville horror part of the Amityville horror. But today, we're looking into the murders that kicked off the whole franchise. So, in the wise words of Hilary Duff's 2003 hit, So Yesterday, let's go back, back to the beginning. It was November 13th, 1974. Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, wasn't packed, but it had its share of the after-work crowd. It was a Wednesday night at 6.30. If you can, please conjure up the image of the quintessential Long Island bar patron in 1974. If you've pictured anything other than a wiry white guy with a blonde mullet, a handlebar mustache, and those creepy glasses every pedophile in history has ever worn, you've done it wrong. Our mulleted dudes in their butt-hugging bell-bottoms, holding bottles of Miller High Life, the champagne of beers, were in the middle of a rousing chorus of the Bachman-Turner Overdrive mega-hit Taken Care of Business, probably, when 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. burst through the front door and yelled, You gotta help me! I think my mother and father were shot! And if you think about it, a bar is not the first place one usually goes when discovering their parents' dead bodies. No. You call 911 first, and then you go to the bar. But for some mystifying reason, Ronald DeFeo Jr., or Butch, as his pals called him, found his parents dead and then walked five minutes to the local bar and told whatever riffraff happened to be there at the time. A handful of patrons hurried to Ronald's house to inspect the scene and call emergency services. Joey Yeswit was the first to call the police, 
Clearly still like, what the fuck is happening? Yeswit told police... Guy come running in the bar. Guy come running in the bar and said there, his mother and father are shot. We ran down to his house and everybody in the house is shot. I don't know how long, you know. So, uh... So, uh, indeed. The next morning, the New York Times printed a description of the gruesome scene. In all, six members of the DeFeo family had been shot, including DeFeo Jr.'s mother, father, two sisters, and two brothers. All of the victims were in pajamas in bed, each shot in the head, back, or neck. The crime scene photos are super eerie. In most of the shots, it just looks like no one is home. The kitchen and living areas, which sort of look like set pieces from that 70s show, look lived in, but mostly tidy. Side note, what was it about the 70s that all the people and their houses looked identical? But in each of the bedrooms lies a member of the DeFeo family face down with bloodstains covering their blankets and sheets. The floral wallpaper, velvet carpeting, and giant family portraits lining the wood-paneled walls provide a stark contrast to the gruesome massacre. Ronald was the only surviving member of the household. And look, we all know by now that the only surviving member of a familicide is the one who did it, but of course you want to give a potential victim of a horrific massacre the benefit of the doubt, right? Right. Unless pretty much every clue is a giant neon arrow pointing right back to the one surviving family member. Right away, the police noticed there were no signs of a break-in or robbery. A real neat job, one of the officers called it. So either the DeFeo family left their doors and windows unlocked, which was... Unlikely, or the murderer was someone close to the DeFeos with easy access to the house. Say, for instance, the family's only surviving son, whose whereabouts on the night of the murder were not accounted for. Police didn't immediately suspect Ronald, but brought him in for questioning because, you know, procedure. Under questioning, Ronald told Detective Gaspar Randazzo he suspected notorious mafia hitman. Louis Fellini. Ronald's uncle, Peter DeFeo, was a prominent member of the Genovese crime family, so the story wasn't completely out of left field. Ronald claimed Fellini held a grudge against the DeFeos as the result of a falling out years prior. He claimed Fellini had lived with the family and helped Ronald's father, Ronald DeFeo Sr., carve out a space in the basement to store cash and gems. Also, Ronald worked at an auto dealership, and he claimed the pair got in a fight when Fellini criticized Ronald's work, and Ronald just couldn't forget about it. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is a strange detail to include when you're trying to implicate someone in a murder. He didn't like the way I did my work. We had a fight, and I never let it go. But Ronald seemed all too eager to provide unneeded details. The following is a monologue I've written, given by Ronald DeFeo Jr. to police based on actual facts. 
yeah, I was real mad at that guy. Plus, also, this one time, I don't know if you guys noticed, but this one time, I set fire to my father's boat for the insurance money. <laughs> that was fun. And yeah, sure, I do loads and loads of heroin and acid and smoke a lot of pot. Like, a lot. And I drink. I have a serious problem with drugs and alcohol. Which is particularly funny when you consider that I'm on probation as we speak and I'm not supposed to be doing any of that stuff. <laughs> Ain't that a laugh? And apparently the police were like, <laughs> Okay, buddy, clearly you had nothing to do with these murders. And you've already told us it was Fellini. You've clearly done a bunch of drugs today. You're high as a kite. Why don't you go sleep it off? And they let him take a nap on a cot in the filing room. They might as well have bought him Burger King. But while police at the station were congratulating themselves for doing such a great job getting information out of Ronald, police back at the scene of the crime identified the type of weapon used in the killings as a 35 Marlin rifle. And then, wouldn't you know, they found a box for a brand new 35 Marlin rifle. Can you guess where? In Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s bedroom. And they were like, wait a minute. He might have lied to us? Back at the station, police roused DeFeo Jr. from his filing room slumber and took him back in for questioning, but this time as a suspect. As I'm sure you can imagine, after a busy day of doing drugs, massacring his family, and lying, an exhausted DeFeo Jr. broke down quickly. He altered his story and claimed that Fellini and some guy woke him up at 3 a.m., led him through the house, and forced him to shoot each of his family members point blank. But Lieutenant Robert Dunn and Detective Dennis Rafferty weren't gonna be fooled twice. They were like, it didn't happen that way, did it? And Ronald began to crack under the pressure. Give me a minute, he told investigators, head in his hands. But they kept pushing. They were never there, were they? Fellini and the other guy were never there! DeFeo Jr. finally conceded, No, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Ronald DeFeo Jr. confessed to the massacre and was arrested by Suffolk County Police. Nice and tidy, right? Turns out, as you're about to find out, not so much. Ronald DeFeo Jr. languished in prison for nearly a year before his trial, which began on October 14, 1975. There was pretty much no doubt that he had committed the crime because he, well, told everyone he committed the crime. So the trial revolved largely around his mental state. Ronald pleaded insanity. Now, clearly someone who massacres their entire family is not in tip-top shape mentally, but the thing about pleading insanity is you can't just be like, I went crazy. You have to prove that the person was unable to tell the difference between right and wrong. Ronald's lawyers had to prove a loss of reasoning power. Ronald's attorney argued that Ronald had been driven to insanity by his abusive father and bizarre family life. Ronald's uncle, Michael Brigante Jr., testified at the trial that Ronald Sr. had in fact been abusive, particularly toward his eldest son. He claimed that once, when Ronald was just two years old, 
he did something that bothered his dad. And Briganti said out of the blue, DeFeo Jr. stood up and just pushed the boy into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Briganti said that DeFeo Sr. could be loving to his son one minute, then violent the next. It also came to light during the trial that Ronald was bullied at school because of his weight. Kids called him the Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Porkchop. And like you and me both, Ronnie, I was bullied relentlessly for being short, wearing hand-me-down clothes, and just being generally weird. Also, my dad once called me Porkchop in front of a boy I liked. But I never felt the need to murder my entire family because of it. Ronald's lawyers argued that Ronald didn't drop the weight until his later teenage years, when he became addicted to amphetamines. His addiction to drugs continued well into his adult years, culminating in his probation for possession. I mean, I would say culminating in the murder of his family, but far be it from me to argue with an attorney at law. Despite Ronald's difficult past, the jury had little sympathy for him, largely due to his statement under oath while being questioned at trial. When Ronald took the stand to explain his actions, he said, Did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir, I killed them all in self-defense. As far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. To which I assume his attorney followed up with, <laughs> ignore that last part, he was totally kidding. But oddly, that part isn't in any of the research. Even worse, Ronald admitted to enjoying the killings. During questioning, he kept repeating that committing the murders felt very good. I mean, you have to have a little sympathy for DeFeo's attorney, right? Getting battered left and right by your own clients' incriminating statements sounds awesome. On Friday, November 21st, 1975, DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life in prison. Great! The bad guy got his day in court, and off to prison he went. The end. Come on, you know me, we're just getting started. Well, first there's a quick and exquisitely written and delivered ad, and then we'll get started. So, Ronald DeFeo Jr. went off to prison for 25 to life times 6. But if DeFeo shot six people sleeping in four separate rooms, why did none of them wake up? The murder weapon was a large rifle, so why didn't neighbors hear the gun's blasts? If everyone was shot in bed, why was there blood spatter on both the floor and dresser? And why hasn't Kate McKinnon answered my DMs? Sorry, that last one has nothing to do with this. It's a coping mechanism. But seriously, Kate McKinnon, reply. Autopsy reports indicate that each member of the DeFeo family was shot lying face down in bed as police found them when they arrived at the scene of the crime. It appeared no one had put up a fight or attempted to flee the scene, which led investigators to believe they hadn't been awoken by the shots. 
It doesn't make sense because, according to experts by the defense team, a Marlin 35 can be heard from a mile away. The prosecution and defense agreed that DeFeo didn't use a silencer. How then did DeFeo commit the murder so quickly that no one in his family could flee or even react? I mean, sure, acid makes a person do some weird shit, but this is pretty much impossible. The gunshots were 140 decibels, which for context is the same number of decibels a roaring jet engine or fireworks create. According to the American Academy of Audiology, that number of decibel is rated painful and dangerous. So there's pretty much no way the family didn't hear the gunshots in the other rooms of the house. Some media reports tried to answer these questions with a simple explanation. The family was drugged. They claimed that DeFeo told police he fed barbiturates to his family with their dinner on the night of the murders. But Dr. Howard Adelman, deputy chief medical examiner of Suffolk County, said that wasn't the case. Adelman told the jury, we did extensive toxicology not only on the blood and urine, but on all the organs that we removed, and it turned up zero, that there wasn't anything in their body. He also testified that it would have been impossible for DeFeo to have carried out the crime alone because even if the family was sleeping, the shots from a 35 Marlin would have, quote, awakened the dead. Even the prosecutor on the case, Gerard Sullivan, was haunted by these unanswered questions. Six years after the trial, Sullivan wrote in his book High Hopes, I wonder about the questions that were never answered. Did any of the victims wake up? If so, why didn't any of them defend themselves? Why were all six found face down in death? Why didn't anyone hear the shots? Now, as we've already established, DeFeo wasn't all there mentally. Maybe he wasn't legally insane, but I think we can all agree that anyone who kills all six of their family members has to be at least a little run-of-the-mill insane. So when DeFeo began to change his story and put forward multiple conflicting accounts of what actually happened that night, it wasn't too surprising. There were inconsistencies in all of the accounts, but a common thread emerged. In nearly all of his revised stories, DeFeo claimed his sister, Dawn DeFeo, helped him carry out the murders. One year after his imprisonment, DeFeo gave a a two-and-a-half-hour interview to Newsday, claiming his mother and sister also played a part in the killings. This seems like something that might have been useful at trial, but it was the first time he claimed anyone else was involved in the murders. DeFeo said that following a series of arguments between his father and sister, Don, who was 18 at the time, shot their father, Ronald Sr., He said the shooting made his mother so distraught that she shot Dawn as well as her three youngest children, Allison, 13, Mark, 11, and John, 9. Then she finished by shooting herself. With a rifle, I might add. Ronald Jr. claimed he found the family dead, flew into a rage, and shot his mother in the head one more time. And, like, murder isn't funny, but come on. What is going on in this family that their anger response is a murderous rage? Like, I get that they had mafia connections, but this is a little too Martin Scorsese to be believable. 
Also, if all Ronald was guilty of was shooting his mother after she shot herself, why in the world would he not have made this known at trial? Why would he have been like, I like murder, murder is fun, la la la. It's notable that in the same interview, DeFeo told a weird lie about being married to a woman named Geraldine and claimed her brother helped with the murders, which was all proven untrue. If we were in a high school English class right now, I might call Ronald DeFeo Jr. an unreliable narrator. This guy is about as trustworthy as Michael Cohen, on a good day. Especially because his version of the story involving Don and his mother conflicts with physical evidence from the crime scene. Also, it just doesn't make a ton of sense. But the interview with Newsday introduced an important idea that investigators have continued to explore for years. DeFeo claimed there was another gun involved in the shootings. The theory about Don's involvement and the use of a second gun garnered attention in 2000 when Ronald gave yet another account of what happened that evening, this time to author Rick Asuna. He told Asuna that he, Don, and two friends had come up with a plan to kill DeFeo Sr., who again, Ronald claimed was abusive. They also wanted to kill their mother because they believed she enabled their father's behavior. They would then drive their younger siblings to safety and live happily ever after? In this version of the tale, Dawn told her siblings, who were in bed but not asleep, that burglars broke into the house and they should stay put no matter what they heard. Dawn, Ronald, and one of their friends then allegedly went to their parents' room with the 35 Marlin. When Ronald allegedly hesitated before killing Ronald Sr., Dawn snatched the gun out of his hand and shot their father in the head. Ronald then grabbed the rifle out of Dawn's hands and shot their mother. After an injured Ronald Sr. rose from the bed, Ronald shot him a second time, ending his life. Their mother was still moaning and flailing in pain, so the friend pulled out a 38 revolver and shot her again before fleeing the scene. In true, if one of us is going down, we're all going down fashion, Ronald claimed to have run after his friend and dragged him back to the house to help clean up. But by the time they got there, Dawn had for some reason gone full Joker and killed their three siblings. Ronald, in a fit of grief and anger, overpowered Dawn, grabbed the rifle, and shot her in the back of the neck. Again, with the I had so many feelings I just had to kill someone defense. But there is some evidence to support this particular version of events. Dawn was seemingly murdered somewhere other than her bed and then placed there after her death. Dawn had a massive head wound and there was brain matter and blood on her pillows, sheets, and nightgown, but the headboard, just a few inches above where she laid, showed no signs of blood spatter. Forensic analysis say this fact suggests Dawn was shot somewhere else. In conjunction with the inexplicable blood spatter on the dresser and the floorboards, it's possible that Dawn's murder took place outside of her bed. Documentarian Ryan Katzenbeck had long been interested in this case. Around 2010, he began compiling information for what would become Shattered Hopes, a six-hour-long trilogy that, quite frankly, has not been well-received. It happens to the best of us, Ryan. I mean, not to me. I am 100% universally well-received. 
Katzenbach threw a major wrench in the case. He discovered there was proof that a potential second murder weapon existed. Katzenbach claimed that police sent him the unredacted case files, which suggested authorities suspected early on that a 38 revolver was also involved in the crime. It's worth noting that Katzenbach was just as surprised as I am that he got the unredacted case files. It seems like it was possibly a mistake. He said of receiving them, I open it and I sat there going, no, 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 this can't fucking be, no way, no way. I thought I would wet my pants. Here it was, the whole file. Handwritten reports, notes, ballistics documentation, you name it, it was there. There are a few times administrative errors work in your favor, but Katzenbach hit the jackpot. And this pot of gold revealed an early ballistics report showing one bullet was different from the rest. Additionally, a police report filed the day after the murders reveals that an officer overheard someone say that DeFeo Jr. was trying to obtain a silencer for a 38 revolver. Sworn testimony from DeFeo Jr.'s friend stated that just a few months before DeFeo Jr. committed the murders, his friend saw a 38 revolver in the top drawer of DeFeo Jr.'s dresser. So everything was coming together for old Ryan Katzenbach. The file indicated that DeFeo Jr. had disposed of evidence from the crime scene in pillowcases. He placed one of the pillowcases in a storm drain in Brooklyn, which he later revealed to police. When they went to search for the stash, it was exactly where he described. Inside was a handgun holster, but no handgun, which led Katzenbach to believe there really was another weapon involved that had been disposed of somewhere else. Katzenbach scoured through the gruesome crime scene photos for additional clues. Something stood out to him, a photo of a trash can. It seemed random at first, but upon closer inspection, he saw there was a pillowcase inside. He discerned that DeFeo Jr. may have disposed of more evidence there. Katzenbach tracked down the former location of the trash can and found that it was at the Coles Avenue bulkhead just a few blocks from the DeFeo home and a few steps from the Richmond Street dock. Katzenbach developed a theory. Ronald DeFeo Jr., potentially with an accomplice, had driven out to the waterfront with a 38 revolver wrapped in a pillowcase. He then tossed the pillowcase in the trash and threw the gun into the water. Katzenbach figured the gun would be located, in his words, quote, as far as a 23-year-old could throw a pistol. That's, that's a fair assumption. So, he did what anyone would do. He hired a team of divers to search the area. And then, he actually found a gun, which... Not for nothing. It's a body of water off Long Island in the mid-70s. I'm sure it was littered with guns. I'm not going to go into detail about the diving expedition to find the gun because it's boring. But out of around 60 items they dug up from years of canal sludge, they found the rusty skeleton of a gun three feet into the canal bed. Katzenbach immediately took the gun to the Suffolk County police, who were basically like, What the fuck do you expect us to do with this piece of garbage? Give me a fucking break over here. And also that there was no way it had anything to do with the DeFeo murders, and they confiscated it anyway. 
But fortunately, Katzenbach had thought ahead and took photos of the gun. When he presented the pictures to various firearm experts and historians, which, you know, it would have taken police about five minutes to do if they had bothered, they confirmed it was likely a 38 revolver manufactured before the murders took place. Doug Wickland, senior curator of the National Firearms Museum in Fairfax, Virginia, said, The gun could have been a 32 or a 38. If I had to guess going by the contour of the grip frame, I'd call it a 38 Ivor Johnson revolver made circa 1890 to 1910. There are similar guns in collections today that could be lost now and in 40 years wind up looking just like this one. That impression, by the way, is based on 30 seconds of a video I watched of Doug Wickland on the NRA TV channel on YouTube. You're welcome. And to add fuel to the fire, marine biologist Ken Hayes, the owner and president of AquaSurvey, confirmed that the gun's depth in the mud was consistent with an object sitting on the canal floor for 38 years. In the words of America's most venerable scientist, Bill Nye, science rules. So, why wouldn't Suffolk County Police take this new evidence into consideration? Well, before it became associated with the word horror, Amityville was just a small village largely supported by its tourism industry. It was a private getaway for Hollywood stars like Annie Oakley, Fred Stone, and Will Rogers, and even notorious gangster Al Capone. Even today, the town has fewer than 10,000 residents. It's pretty understandable, then, that the town didn't want to become associated with a violent and mysterious familicide. Even if police suspected in 1974 that a second gun or possible accomplice was involved with the DeFeo murders, they already had a murder weapon and a confession. The case was bringing too much scrutiny, and they were eager to pinpoint the culprit, close the case, and never look back. Much to the chagrin, of course, and despite their best efforts to close the case as quickly as possible, Amityville has become synonymous with horror. Maybe if the murders had happened in Two Egg, Florida, which is a real place, by the way, it wouldn't have taken off the way it has. No one's flocking to the theater to see the Two Egg horror. To date, there are 25 Amityville horror-related movies. When I say related, I mean very loosely. The latest movie somehow incorporates a vampire element into the Amityville narrative. People flock to the DeFeo house to take photos and occasionally ring the doorbell, interrupting the lives of current inhabitants. And even worse than the gruesome stories people concoct about the house, which involve oozing walls and bleeding pig heads, is the fact that Eminem named a song after the town. Quote, Mentally ill from Amityville, he'll accidentally kill your family still, thinking he won't? God damn it, he will. He's mentally ill from Amityville. Which, in addition to being the least problematic lyrics in that horrifically awful song is probably not something they'll adopt as their town slogan anytime soon. The mystery of the DeFeo murders and Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s ever-changing story added to the crime's sense of intrigue. But the truth is, we'll never know what actually happened that night. 
The real story died with Ronald DeFeo Jr. on March 12, 2021, at the Albany Medical Center in New York. He was 69 years old and had been imprisoned for 46 of those years. His cause of death hasn't been released, but he was in the hospital for a month before he died. And, of course, if you've read the Amityville Horror, you know that the story doesn't end with DeFeo Jr.'s imprisonment, and it certainly won't end with his death. Only a year or two after Ronald DeFeo Jr. massacred his entire family, newlyweds George and Kathy Lutz bought the five-bed, three-and-a-half bath for $80,000 and moved in with their three kids from Kathy's previous marriage. George said they figured that houses don't have memories and therefore weren't too worried about any lingering, bad mass murder vibes. In fact, George said about their first viewing of the house, Kathy walked in and she just started smiling. This was the best thing that she had seen so far in terms of what she liked and what we were looking for. We had the kids with us. We walked through it and we all really fell in love with it. The Lutz family felt confident they could start anew in the home where six people had recently been shot point-blank. Ah, young love. Next time, I'll tell you just how wrong the Lutzes were. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, the Amityville Horror. I'll take you on a tour of the infamous house on Long Island and tell you all about the family who claims to have been tormented inside the house. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something that we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.